Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. Hi. Hi. We're going to talk about something weird. <laughs> the, as, uh, as usual. <laughs> and my name's Carrie. Oh, I'm Jack. I am called Dean. I'm Emma. Take it away, man called Dean. I just said I am called Dean. I said as a man. Oh. I don't know. I don't want to reveal my gender. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about a walk in the woods that occurred over 50 years ago. This is going to be Meriwether Lewis and Haymarket. 50 What's years ago, Meriwether oh. Lewis. <laughs> 50 years ago. I missed that detail. Okay. 50 years ago, I was alive. Yes, you were, yes, Mom. You were. Roger Patterson and his friend Bob Gimlin were wandering through the forest in Six Rivers National Park in Northern California. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Oh, where is, where is this? Way up there, way northwest Northern California. Not quite to the... Oregon border, but not too far. Oh, okay. Or, as David Ducotney would say, Oregon. Mm. Suddenly, the horses rear up. They're spooked by something. <gasps> Patterson looks ahead and he sees something, some creature walking through a clearing from the Bluff Creek on his left toward kind of the forest and tree line <laughs> on his right. Fortunately, he has a 16 millimeter film camera in his saddlebag. So he dismounts, and he, at that point, he takes the second most famous amateur film in history. What's number What's one? The first? I'm yeah. going to go with Zapruder, it, yeah. Zapruder film. Kennedy, I would agree. I think so. Although uh, yeah. some people have said this rivals that. This no. is the Patterson-Gimlin film of Bigfoot, known affectionately mm. as PGF. Patterson-Gimlin films. If you hear that, that's what I mean. I just call it that Bigfoot video where she walking. She's walking. she's looking. She mm-hmm. looks. She famously, iconically yeah. looks back and looks straight at the camera with a arms are swinging, fuck with me kind of look. So there was, of course, so much more to their story. Let's tell that. Really? Shall we? Yes, we will. Let's start with the guys. Roger Patterson had caught the Bigfoot bug early. <laughs> he read an article in True Magazine in 1959, written by Ivan T. Sanderson. What an ironic name! Do you remember that name? That name, Ivan T. Sanderson. No. He was the a cryptozoologist, a legendary cryptozoologist. He was the strongest advocate for the Minnesota Iceman, <laughs> oh. the circus hoax really? of the Bigfoot in Minnesota. And I not too long Iceman. after this happened. I was um, going to say, what a great track record. Yeah, didn't he though? He quickly became, he, uh, Patterson became a Bigfoot believer after, after this reading this article. He traveled to a place called Bluff Creek, California, in 1962, mm. and he met other Bigfoot trackers there, Bigfoot hunters, I guess. He was back in Bluff Creek again in 1964, and he was taken to a place called Laird Meadows and supposedly saw his first Bigfoot tracks then in 1964 Ooh. and oh. made plaster cast of them. Oh, we'd love it. When, when did Bigfoot become a thing? 19, essentially late 1950s, really. I mean, okay. there were stories and things like that, but it really wasn't a major, major... It, it, there was an incident in 1957 in British Columbia that got some attention. Then there was the um, famous, the most famous tracks were 1958 by a guy, called, a guy called Ray Wheeler, who made the first really famous Bigfoot tracks, made plaster casts of them, and it became uh, a well-known... It got a lot of media coverage and became generally well-known. Ironically, okay. or maybe not so ironically... Those f- initial cast that made Bigfoot a household name were 99.9% uh, hoax. Fake, they were fake. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, are you impressed? I did that off the top of my head. 
Good job. <laughs> okay. Do you want a cookie? <laughs> I can do. So anyway, he's all in now. And he's, he's basically become kind of a Bigfoot hunter himself by this point in the mid-1960s. He just has this dream of finding absolutely incontrovertible evidence of Bigfoot and, and frankly, making a payday and making some cash off of it. Yeah. So when they went out into the woods that day, was he, I mean, were they looking for Bigfoot? That's exactly what they're doing. We'll get to okay. that in a second, but yes. It was not a happenstance. It was an accident. Film camera. Yeah, a sixty millimeter, an expensive sixty millimeter yeah. film camera. He had to rent, and he was not a rich man. So, Patterson he founded the, what he called the Northwest Research Foundation in the mid nineteen sixties. It was basically a group that solicited donations mainly to pay for him to do his so far failed excursions <laughs> oh looking God. for Bigfoot all throughout the Northwest. He lived in Yakima, Washington, by the way, up Yakima. in South Central Washington. Of oh. iCarly fame. Yes. Is it really? Yeah. They were in true. Yakima, Washington? They weren't no. in Yakima, but there was like this whole plot about like the having, to go, having to go to Yakima. Uh, and she didn't want to oh, go live in Yakima. I'm sure it's and it introduced it to our generation. Yes. Because okay. they were in Apples? Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Yakima's pretty far from it's, it's more rural and it's down exactly. in the Yes, exactly. Okay, got it. All Carly right. didn't want to go. She said, Spencer, I don't want to. Oh. Grandpa in Yakima. Mm-hmm. How do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think I was doing behind you guys all the time when you're watching? I didn't Night know Carly. you were behind me, <laughs> <you> <laughs> Phantom. That just sounded kind of creepy. Here. I remember watching it in my room. <laughs> you guys you behind you guys. I was in the kitchen while they were watching TV. Paying attention to iCarly. Okay. <laughs> yes. All right. Absorbing iCarly knowledge. In 1966, Patterson self published a paperback book called. Do abominable, abominable snowmen of America really exist? Did he answer that question in his book? In his mind, he did. And the answer was yes. yes. Clearly. It was really just kind of a pastiche of newspaper stories and his own kind of stories from his Bigfoot hunting in the, in the 60s. Define out in the pastiche. Wilderness. It's just a... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> an aggregation. He took stories from here and there and, and pasted them together. He pastiched them together into oh, a book. There we go. Uh-huh. Oh, it was an agglomeration. You there we go. Frenchified the podcast there. I yeah. never Frenchified it. Mm-hmm. Recherche. <laughs> I prefer more big Quebecois. I taught them that word yesterday. Recherche. There were drawings and maps of these supposed tidbits of evidence in his book, as well as pictures and illustrations that he just plain t- took from other media. I don't. I don't think oh. he had the rights to them. He probably did not. Again, he self-published it. He made a little money. It paid some bills, and it kept him out in the woods, searching and yeah. dreaming of finding Bigfoot. Yeah. Bob Gimlin was kind of a modern-day cowboy. Ew. He, he was, well, not, he didn't wrestle cows, well, cows, no. horses, but he was a horseback <laughs> rider. He was a rodeo rider. He was a horse tamer. He also did suicide races, which was just full-speed, balls-out horse races in rural areas where a broken neck was around every stride of your horse. People you know got why? badly hurt in those really? things. Jesus. I don't appreciate that. He's a crazy dude. Those horses were probably abused. Probably so. Yeah. Yes. I think All it's safe day, to say. Day. He was pretty well known, though, throughout the Yakima Valley in central Washington. He, um, Gimlin was. So, so Patterson knew him from Yakima. Kind of this horse racing and, and rodeo kind of world. Patterson was kind of in, in as well. Sure. The outdoorsy set there in Yakima. So by 1967, Gimlin was, he was just kind of just barely getting by. He was fixing roofs. He was driving trucks. He was still taming horses. Then one day he bumped into Roger Patterson at a gas station in Yakima. Patterson was 
ill still at this time from a recent battle with cancer. Oh, Oh, goodness. But he could not hold back. He met Gimlin. He started talking about Bigfoot almost immediately. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) One of those. He's the worst at parties. I just know it. (laughs) He was, think about a really, really big Bigfoot enthusiast, but someone who wants to make a lot of cash out of it. I mean, there's no question. He, was, he, he had dreams of this being a payday. There's no, there's wow. absolutely no, no question about that whatsoever. So he showed Gimlin a, the cast, one of the casts he had of this massive giant foot, and he said he had found it. He had got it over in the Mount St. Helens area. So he said to Gimlin, you know, hey, I want to go back in the wilds around Mount St. Helens looking for more uh, footprints or even an actual creature. You're a great horseman. I am too. Let's go together. Will you go with me? Be my partner in that. It's, you know, it's wild country. We'll go in the backwoods there. Ginlid said, hard pass. But, uh, because unlike, you know, not, Ginlid wasn't any kind of Bigfoot enthusiast. He didn't know, really know much about it. So he, he didn't want to do that with Patterson, but Patterson would just keep bugging him. Every time he saw him, he'd bring it up, and he would go out of his way to That's just... That's weird. Well, he wanted someone mm-hmm. to go with him. This is the story, by Why the somebody who hates it, though? Yeah. Right? yeah. Hey, you really it. aren't interested, interested in this? <laughs> Come with me and let's do it. That's the great person. <laughs> Stupid. Well, in August 1967, <laughs> Patterson told Gimlin that he had just heard that a logging crew near uh, Bluff Creek, California, in the Six Rivers National Park, had seen a Bigfoot. A lead. A spotting, a sighting. It was a lead, exactly. So that was intriguing even to Gimlin. Again, as their story goes. Uh-huh. So finally, Gimlin said, yeah, fine, I'll do this. I'll go with you down to Bluff Creek down in California, over 508, almost 600 yeah. miles away, <laughs> and we'll go see if we can find us a Bigfoot. Patterson said he was going to rent an expensive film camera, so who knew? Maybe they'd get lucky. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. So it's October 1967. Patterson and Gimlin, they took Gimlin's truck down to Six Rivers, and they, in, they had a horse trailer with three horses in it. Why did they, they bring the horses? They needed horses to go ride in the backcountry. I mean, this is rough country. This oh. is, there aren't going to be roads out there. They went as far in, in as they could, and they set up a camp with the truck there, and then they camped up, and they got on their horses and rode out to backcountry. And I've seen it. You'll, you'll see it on, on YouTube if you want. But there's some film footage of apparently just really just riding around. Of course, there's the famous film we're going to talk about, all 60 seconds of it, or 59.5 seconds. Oh, shit. But there's other footage as well. Of just Gimlin riding around, leading the horse. I mean, really? just like middle of nowhere forest, sunny and bright. Really bad wanna... photography, too, by the way. <laughs> of Gimlin just riding around in this expensive 16 yeah. millimeter film. Just, hmm. just put that in the back of your head there. So they had they set up camp near Bluff Creek and they sat out on horseback. Gimlin, both they were both on a horse, and then Gimlin led a, the third horse packed with provisions so they could rough it out there if they needed to. There, again, there had been reports of Bigfoot tracks in this area, most prominently by one by an August 28th by Rene de Handine. He was a seasoned Bigfoot hunter, French originally, as you can tell. Yes. Mm-hmm. John Green, who was maybe one of the most prominent Bigfoot researchers and writers at the time, he had reported de Handine's sighting, right? So this is how it came to the attention of Patterson and Gimlin. Well, and Gimlin through Patterson. They also, by the way, among their provisions on the, on the third horse, or actually on, on their, all, both their horses were rifles. Because this, this is a dangerous country. There's bears out there and things like that. Bigfoot right? attacked them. Cougars. Cougars, bears. <laughs> and Cougars. Because this is a desperate housewives country. Yes, it <laughs> is. Yes. Cougars. It is. But Gimlin, uh, Patterson, I'm sorry, had made Gimlin promise that if they did indeed count, encounter a live Bigfoot, he was not to shoot it. 
Well, Good. yeah. He said, if it takes me, it takes me, but I will not shoot it. <laughs> he was from Yakima, Washington. So I don't know I don't, what a Yakima's accent is. I don't know Probably, that they have one. No. So well, just, everyone has. So stop accent. making fun of people from the south. I'm, I'm resentful of that. Okay. <laughs> I've gotten much better at not doing that, by the way. So the two men podcast. What? What? I don't know. Next, the two <laughs> men rode along the eastern bank of Bluff Creek, uh, and it's October twentieth now, nineteen sixty-seven, between approximately one fifteen p.m. and one forty p.m. They stalled at this huge overturned tree with just a massive root system upturned right it blocked it almost blocked the flow of the creek at that point with its roots that were quote almost as high as a room so i don't know unquote <laughs> ten, 10 feet tall yeah about 10 feet tall nine <laughs> or ten feet whatever that means they rounded this obstruction <laughs> and with patterson in the lead and he felt his horse rear up under him he looked up and he, he spotted something quote crouching beside the creek to their left are alternatively, quote, standing on the opposite bank. You'll, you'll see that, that in a minute. Gimlin saw it too. So both men freeze, shocked. Oh my God, we're looking at a Bigfoot. Yeah. Patterson figured later that he was about 25 feet, seven and a half meters away from the creature when, when this, the huge hairy beast began just to walk from left to, to right from the creek to, across kind of a really rough partial clearing, I guess, is, is how I describe it. I mean, there's, there's high grass, there's lots of ground debris, there's even some branches and even limbs across it. You see, it's, it's, it's kind of rough country, but it's more or less a clearing from the riverbank to the, the tree line. I mean, it's surrounded by trees. Think of a, of a pseudo partially cleared meadow on, at the riverside. Seen it. Okay. I was going to give you, I'm going to lay the, the lay of the land there. So, it lurches on two legs. It was covered in, quote, silvery brown or, quote, dark reddish brown what? or, quote, black hair, depending on the different descriptions. Mm. It had long Three arms. Three different descriptions by two different men. Uh-huh. Okay. Boop. Long mm. arms, massive build, huge feet. This is a classic Bigfoot in every way, right? Yeah. Only this one had huge pendulous breasts swinging with every stride. Yeah. As it calmly. Had titties? Yeah, oh, yeah. They don't Big. have no Victoria's Secret out there. Uh-uh. Those- uh-uh. They have no support throughout their adolescence so, and into their adulthood. So we're talking, yeah. Swinging. Big, big swinging. Eight is, it's, uh, it's famous. It's, it's really the second most iconic thing after the look is the titties. Don't you think? They're kind of famous. I don't know that they I really kind of set it apart. The boobs on that. What I, now? It took me Seriously? a long time to know. I didn't ever see yeah. the thing in its entirety for yeah. a really long time. I would yeah. just see the, the tiny small, short clip. like yeah, three well, second part of yeah, okay. when it looks at the camera. Yeah, we'll talk about the the footage later on. But it's, the titties. It's, uh, and we won't talk that much about the titties. Well, this you is not, bring it up a lot. <laughs> okay. Well, I just want that that really set it apart. It's like no one ever thought. Oh yeah. I guess they'd have titties if they're a girl. And, and so it, it kind of, yeah. it helped make it famous, honestly, I think. I mean, it would have been famous anyway, but still, it, it made it sort of distinctive. So it walks calmly, kind of almost strolls, ambles toward the woods. And they realize with the titties that this was no Sasquatch. This was a she-squatch. Copyright <laughs> me. Actually, yeah. Copyright actually, you. That name? Yeah, I did okay. make that up, actually. Patterson, I really did. It's in Urban Dictionary. <laughs> uh, by you? Yes, by me. Oh. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say. Patterson initially said the creature was about six feet, six inches tall, but he later upped that to by a full foot and said it was seven and a half feet tall. Jesus. He claimed. Gimlin thought it was only about six feet tall. 
bit. That's a, a big it's distinction. A it's yeah. a full yeah, yeah. foot and a half range. At, at the extremes, it is. Grover Kranz, he's a Washington State anthropologist who would later become, I'm sorry, Washington State University. So he was a oh. legit anthropologist. So he would later become, and really by that time already was maybe, the foremost scientific defender of Bigfoot. He, Which is ironic. Why? Scientific. Well, yeah, I mean, no, he, he... Science doesn't really defend the existence No one else does. There's always, yeah. there's always one. There was him, and then later there's a guy named, and still is a guy named Jeff Meldrum at Idaho State, and they've been kind of the only truly academically trained and, and practicing mm. anthropologists or scientists that have supported Bigfoot or Burley. But at this time, it was Grover Krantz. In the 70s, it was all about Grover Krantz at Washington State. He... Krantz estimated that, that the tracks, I'm sorry, he estimated from the tracks that Patterson's first guess was correct. That is, the creature is about six and a half feet tall. Huh. So not seven and a half feet tall. It's not hmm. very tall. Yeah. Not crazy tall, not as tall as a lot of people think. Yeah. In yeah. fact, though, you, you go back earlier there and, and they weren't as tall. They were rarely described. That the, the seven foot, seven and a half, eight feet tall, like they later kind of became. Yeah. Yeah. Sensationalization. Yeah. After Patterson's horse reared and stopped, it, he says he estimated it took him about 20 seconds to calm the horse down, and he dropped to the ground, right? So he grabs his camera from his saddlebag, and he yelled, cover me, to Gimlin. Uh-huh. Patterson jogged. With, the, with what? The, with rifle? the rifle? Yeah. 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 Patterson Jumped. jogged. He wasn't a crazy man. He wasn't suicidal. He, you know, in case that thing turned back on him, he was a dead man. So Patterson jogged toward the creature while filming. He's like dodging things and and climbing over tree limbs and the, and the ground cover. Uh, you'll, we'll talk about it later, but watch if you're going to watch the film, watch it in its unstabilized original form. It's horrifically shaky. You can't see anything for yeah. a long time. Mm-hmm. It's it's not. It's grainy. It's unbelievably unstable and shaky and terrible. The, the, you finally get to that point where he slows down, or he stops and he films, and you get that iconic look back. But even that's it's a very short portion of the film, and then you start running again. Uh, it's the, the vast majority of those fifty nine point five seconds. It's very from shaky, from slightly shaky to you can't see anything at all. That actually Weird. lends a little credibility to it, because if you're really running, trying to does it get remember the alien autopsy. Enough. That was yes. real. Remember why they were, remember that shaky camera work? Yeah. Remember the it reason for that shaky high. camera work? It was? could go what was the reason? way. I suppose it could. Sure. What was it? That? That's kind of probably. It was, the to, point. It was to obscure yes. what, was, mm. what was being found. To but it was, that one was real. So That was real. You're yeah. right. This one's real too. <laughs> but. Little green men, big brown woman. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll snip that out. So, um, I get it though. Gimlin, Gimlin rode across the creek. To Patterson's left, and he dismounted, and he got his rifle ready, but he says he never actually aimed it. He just was sort of ready to, you know, cover sure. him. Sure. By the time Patterson started chasing the creature, it was a good 120 feet, 36 meters away, and is walking away from him toward the forest. So the 60-second film starts, as I said, incredibly shaky since Patterson is, is running. When the creature glanced over his shoulder and looked straight back at Patterson, he fell down to his knees and he continued filming from that position, right? And that's where you get... So now the film's a little steadier and we get that famous look back where he stares straight at Patterson and that's that's the most iconic uh, frame of the film. It's frame 352, by the way. Okay. (laughs) Patterson said that... I mean, no, trust me. People have done this frame by frame. Uh, I'm sure they have. But if anything... 
you indicated earlier that most of those frames are useless. Yes, the vast majority are. You're right. Um, Patterson said that that was actually the third look that the creature had looked back at him as he's running toward it. He just hadn't been able to capture the first two on film. The Bigfoot then, he sort of disappears into the woods for about 14 seconds. And it's weird because he is, Patterson continues to go after it and, and, and run after it, so it's really shaky for a while. And then he sets up again, filming to where the creature, I guess, should be. And then it comes out back into view and is in view for another 15 seconds until it goes behind trees and is lost to view. It then, so at that point, it's kind of faded into the forest and the reel of the film runs out. So the reel, literally, as it, as it sort of disappears into the tree line, you again, watch the film on YouTube, and the, and the reel runs out. So that's, you know. At that point... Convenient. Yeah, it is a little bit. It's estimated, Patterson estimated that he, the creature was about 265 feet, 81 meters, okay. away from him. That's, that's pretty far. Very that's very, that's far. very far. very far, yeah. That's, and weirdly uh, accurate, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it is pretty accurate. You're right. And there are lots and lots of questions of exactly how far away he was, exactly, mm-hmm. you know, because, yeah. again, to make, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but there's all these uh, precise measurements yeah. made by the advocates of it, and it's just, and a lot of scientists have said, you just can't do that. It's just yeah. not, it's not possible given the unknowns in that film of distance and, and, and size and Scale. things like that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's much harder than people realize. So Patterson would later tell Bigfoot enthusiast and researcher John Green that we mentioned a minute ago mm. that he felt, quote, contempt and disgust, unquote, sort of, sort of ooze from the creature's withering glare that just it looked back at him and it's like, I love it. Maybe it is a desperate housewife. <laughs> best not follow me. You don't want to be following me right now, bro. Mm-hmm. Quote, you know how it is when the umpire tells you one more word and you're out of the game. That's the way I felt, unquote. Sure. We all know that feeling. <laughs> We've all had violent outbursts it's during one of those, our baseball tenure. It's that silent, right. like, don't even, just, you need to stop right now, okay? You've said your piece, stop it. Looks like you, you, you've run after me a little bit here. You're filming me a little while. You better stop there or there's going to be some fisticuffs. Good thing he had that other guy covering him with the rifle. Yeah, he did. That's, that's, Allegedly. that's fortune, fortunate. Gimlin remounted his horse and he followed the creature into the forest at this point. Remember, Patterson oh. has run away from his horse and in fact, Patterson's horse had taken off, he hmm. says. So Gimlin got back in his horse and he went past Patterson and he chased the Bigfoot into the, the forest there, the tree line. He kept at it. He followed it at a healthy distance as one would but it then, when it disappeared around a bend in a logging road, he says he lost track of it. But this is at exactly this time, Patterson shouted for him to come back. He would later say that he was uncomfortable on foot and without his, his uh, rifle, remember his horse had run off, and he feared maybe the creature's mate might be in the area and might come by and be pissed that they chased off his girlfriend slash wife slash whatever. Okay. So he was scared, so he yelled for Gimlin, stop chasing this, you know, Obsession of my life, yeah. <laughs> and come back to me because I'm a little I'm a little scared out here alone. So Jim Gimlin came back. He returned to the clearing, and that was it. I mean, that's the incident. That's the entire incident. The entire incident lasted less than two minutes. That's it. And yeah. along with its massive footprints, it left behind nothing more than a nasty, skunky odor. Ew. A smell, a smelly, smell, smell. Not even a pile of shit. No, no, <laughs> no shit. No, because they saw it for less than two minutes. 
It could have been poop. That implies it's poops every two minutes, and that's wrong. That's Sasquatchian. Sasquatchist. What? He said it was kneeling at the riverbed. Our standing. What do you think it was doing? Yeah. Uh, Drinking. Pooping. No, he wasn't pooping. It probably wouldn't poop by the river. Why not? Because that's where it gets its water. You think it's smart enough to know how to avoid cholera? Absolutely. Hell yeah. I do. Smarter than medieval humans. So... The, the two men chased down Patterson's horse and they retrieved the uh, second roll of film he had with him. They wanted to get footage of the tracks on the ground that led through the clearing into the trees, which they did. They then attempted to track it for a mile or three miles. Their stories differed here too, but quote, lost it in the heavy undergrowth. So they tried to track the tracks and were, were only able to do so very for a short time. So they went back all the way to the camp and they got some plaster of Paris and they, remember, their camp is three miles away. So they went back to camp, got the plaster parents, came back to the area, the, the clearing where it happened, and they made two casts of the footprints to bring back with them. And they also measured the stride between the footprints of this creature that many would come to call Patty. Mm. <laughs> Patty. So she was a chick. Patterson. Yeah. She's a woman. Patty. Uh, I like it less. I, yeah, me too. That second reel of film, remember, this is a reel of film that shows the footprints, and so, right? It, it, that second reel of film, basically, he, uh, Patterson showed it one time, just a little bit later in 1967 at the University of British Columbia at like an exhibit, an exhibition, exhibition and no one's ever seen that reel of film again. It's lost ever since then. Lost. What? I mean, how? We don't know. Close Good question. Lost. The, actual, the actual film itself, yeah. the 59.5 seconds, the actual Patterson Gimlin film, is also, I've, I've read that it's lost as well. All we have now are copies. Really? Huh. Yeah. That's what I've, I've read. That. I don't know how true that is about the, the, huh. the, the main reel, but that's what I've read. You needed to keep better track of his stuff. You sure did. Responsible. Yeah. Some critics have noted mostly minor inconsistencies in the versions of the story told by Gimlin and Patterson that you've probably noticed yourself already. So let's talk about the stories a little bit. This, the, the, actual story itself of, of how they came across this. So Patterson, for instance, would increase the size of the beast with each retelling. <laughs> it became six and a half feet, seven feet, seven and a half feet. There was also, of course, remember how long they tracked it, its exact colors. There were a lot of little inconsistencies in the details that the two men told. And, and again, very smart. even Patterson had changed his details within him, his own story himself. So people started, pretty quickly, people started thinking, okay, well, yeah, come on, guys. The most serious discrepancy, though, is the timeline of the filming and then also the kind of how and where the film was developed. This has become a, a big, big problem with the PGF believers, so I'll tell you why. The earliest they took the film, from their own account, was 1.15 p.m. Remember? It was between 1.15 and 1.40 that their horse reared up and they saw the Bigfoot. So the earliest that started is 1.15 p.m. They were back in... Willow Creek, California, which is a town well south of where they were, no later than 6.30 p.m., right? Mm -hmm. So that leaves a little over five hours max. In that period, they had to take the footage. Yeah. Gimlin has to, remember, go after the beach and follow it. He has to, Patterson has to call him and Gimlin has to come back. Both have to go and, and find Patterson's horse and bring it back. They then have to uh, go back to camp, get the second reel, come yeah. back, take, pla- uh, take footage of the track. I'm sorry, no, no. They got the second reel filming from his saddlebag. They took footage of the tracks, though. They then go back to the camp three miles away in rough country 
and they get plaster of Paris and other equipment. They then, again, ride through the rough country on horseback all the way back to where they were, to the the film site, to the encounter site, and that's when they take cast and they take measurements of the strides. They then have to ride horseback three miles all the way back to camp again. They then have to load the horses, load all the gear into the truck, and they have to drive all the way back to Willow Creek. Willow Creek is about 54 miles from their camp. Damn. Oh. Wow. More than half oh, of hell that. No. More than half of that was on a little road called Bluff Creek Road, which is a winding mountain trail. Remember, they're, they've got a lot of gear. It's an old truck, yeah. and they're towing three horses in a trailer. So probably at least two hours. I, oh, girl. Uh, and, and then... If that. It would take me seven. Well, it, <laughs> I would be going five miles per hour. Even the rest of the... They are on Highway 96 for a while, which is a state highway, but it's only one lane each way, and it's also a very winding road. I've, I've looked it up on a, the lovely Google Maps. So they then arrive at Al Hodgson's, uh, Al Hodgson's Variety Store at 6.30 p.m. in Rilla Creek. That's why we have that part of the timeline hmm. locked. Okay? No. We'll talk, we'll talk about that in a minute. It. We'll talk about how realist, realistic that timeline is in a minute. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's a problem. It sounds a little realistic it's, to me. It's people who have kind of gone through it minute by minute, given all they had to do, have... Well, we'll talk about it in a little bit. <laughs> so the other problem, though, is how they got the film developed and when and where. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But there's huge questions about that, even from themselves. So Patterson used Kodachrome to movie film. Uh, this was a weekend... And apparently folks have looked into it, and there are very few places on the West Coast that could have developed such film. Yeah, that's believable. It, it requires, mm-hmm. a, a, at the time, a certain very expensive machine. Hmm. So there weren't many places that could do it. They claim to have sent the film to Yakima, Washington by charter plane. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. Charter plane. Charter plane, yes. Really? Yes, yes. yes. of course. They sent okay. it ahead. By, 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 from there... Patterson's brother-in-law, a man named Alda Atley, we'll hear, hear more about him in a moment, he supposedly took the film to get developed. So he, they sent it to Al, Roger's brother-in-law in Yakima. He goes at the airport, I guess, gets it, and he is now his response. Uh, Roger told him, take this to get it developed, right? He would later say he cannot remember where he took the film to get developed or where he picked it up again after it was really? developed. He, ju- he, just, he doesn't know where it was. It was kind of a mystery film developer somewhere near Yakima that he took it to. So we'll also we'll, we'll, we'll pick that apart in a little bit as well. Well, couldn't somebody determine what possible places he could have taken it to? Yes, I'm sure they could, but he doesn't remember where, and so he has plausible deniability for any of those places when they ask those places and say, did someone bring in this film of a Bigfoot to get <laughs> developed? Yeah. And they say, no, we remember that. Right. So, I mean, it's an, I'll say it now, it's an inescapable conclusion. The, the reason he forgot where he took is because he that's didn't. something that can be checked. Yeah. And clearly, that's not, I don't know. And, and, and again, in, in, at this time, We'll talk about the plane in a second as well, but that was unlikely as well. So now let's go back to the timeline real quick. Yeah. Researchers have studied that timeline that you, that you said is possible minutely. The various researchers have come to the conclusion that it was their estimates range from super, 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 super tight, but possible to laugh out loud. That's ridiculous. It's absolutely impossible to, to do what they had to have done on the horseback and truck and things like yeah. that in that timeline. Yeah. It's highly unlikely. Yeah. Is it physically possible? Just barely, maybe. The questionable timeline and the kind of time and place issues with the film development have led many to believe that the footage was shot earlier than alleged. 
that mm. that's I mean that's oh. that, that would explain how they were able to get it developed who God knows where when it could have been days or weeks ago before this th- mm. occurred and that would explain you know the lack of a plane to have taken it the lack of a place to develop it over the weekend in the timeline that they alleged and it would also explain yeah. the, the timeline yeah I mean what the obvious answer is they should have said oh do we say 115 I meant you know 1115 I don't know but then again they probably you know the sun was at a certain yeah. angle that they probably yeah. couldn't make it too early in the morning so a lot of folks think that the, the footage the, the whole thing's explained if that footage was taken earlier than they, they claim it was no, so now they're in Willow Creek. They've got the film. They haven't sent it off yet. They drove back toward the coast to the Eureka Arcata area, which is on the, toward the California coast up in far, far northern California. There, Patterson called his brother-in-law, Al Delatley, and said, hey, I'm going to ship this film up to you in Yakima. You go pick it up and get developed. So that's how they, they arranged for that to happen. Then, and then at that point, I guess they would have had to arrange for this alleged charter plane to transport the film. So uh, Roger and Bob Gimlin then drive back to their camp, way back up, all the way back up in Six Rivers National Park because they need to get their horses. I'm sorry, I I misspoke earlier. They left their horses and a lot of the equipment there before they drove back to Willow Creek. So I misspoke. That would save a little bit of time. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. (laughs) But that's a little bit weird, isn't it? Are they in a hurry? I mean, why not? I mean, I guess, I, I think they thought they might co- go back and look a little more for the Bigfoot, I, I guess, I'm yeah. assuming. But on the way back to their camp, they stop at a place called Lower Trinity Ranger Station, where they had a scheduled 9 p.m. meeting with a friend named Syl McCoy and Al Hodgson, who owned that variety store down in Willow Creek. So they had already arranged to meet those two guys in the uh, ranger station at 9 p.m. that night. I don't know. What for? Yeah, I, why? Just meet up and talk about what they saw. I mean, I, they were again. They were on a Bigfoot hunting expedition. They had the camera oh. with them. I, 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 yeah. I, okay, I guess. I that guess. Checks out. I guess. So meet up, talk about Bigfoot. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So they do, and they tell McCoy and Hodgson what they just seen, and what they just filmed, and this is the first time that anyone they had told anyone, right? I guess when they're back in Eureka, they didn't tell anyone. Patterson. At that point, from the radio station, calls the Times Standard newspaper in Eureka, which is right by where they just were, and he tells them, here's what just happened. Here's a new story. Hot off the press. You guys have it. This was the first media report of the film ever, was through the Times, this Times Standard in Eureka. Hmm. Huh. Gimlin and Patterson finally got back to their campsite at midnight, which also makes it a little weirder, too, though. I mean, really? Is that, I mean, you're out in the, in the rough country... I don't know. It just seems a little bit odd to me. Uh, why? I mean, well, uh, the meeting. That? I mean, the meeting. Oh, why okay. set up that meeting? I mean, that, what if they hadn't gone to Willow Creek that night and just camped out by their camp where they were? They would have driven all the way down to the ranger station to meet those guys. What for? They're you know you're out there for a reason. Hunting Bigfoot guys. This is not a party. I don't want to talk about it. Is the is, was the ranger guy? I forgot if you said or not. Was he an, also a bigfoot enthusiast? I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if he was. Oh, or not. I was gonna say if he was a bigfoot enthusiast, I could understand it more. Yeah. Because like if you go mm-hmm. on a trip for bigfoot, you probably want to talk to other bigfoot right. enthusiasts, but not yeah. just this random ranger man far I know, away. But, but that's odd. It's still say it's like a weekend or a three day. I don't know how long they planned on being their excursion. I don't know that you need to drive miles and miles and miles on country roads at all to go visit with people just talk, talk to me after you're done yeah yeah right it's only a couple of days so Gimlin and Patterson they get back to the campsite at midnight 
at about daybreak the next morning, which is around 5 or 5.30 in the a.m., Gimlin rode back to the location of the encounter, and he covered the tracks with bark to protect them from the elements. He had gotten some cardboard boxes from Hodgson back in Rillo Creek at the variety store for this purpose, but he had left those boxes outside the tent during the night and had rained, Uh-oh. so they were soaking wet, <laughs> so he goes back with bark to protect the tracks. It doesn't work. No one else ever saw those huh. tracks, by the way. Yeah. And then they got kind of worried, because it's raining, right? This is the day after the encounter. It's raining, and they thought, gosh, we're worried that the road might wash out, so we won't be able to get back for until they can fix the road. So they decided that that's it. We're going to head back for home now rather than stick around and look for more physical evidence of Bigfoot. You know, as, as any man who was, had been obsessed for over a, a decade at least with hunting Bigfoot would do, yeah. mm-hmm. just abandon and go back. If we've got some film, we sent on yeah. up to Yakima. I mean, my God, uh, rain. It might rot, wash out the road, which, by the way, it did not. Hmm. Would, would that really send I, you packing? One would think uh, not. Yeah. No. It wouldn't send me packing. And I, I mean, no, exactly. Yeah. These guys had plenty of provisions. They can, they can yeah. stay a few days. So they said that's it. They drove home the 580 miles to Yakima that night. During wow. their trip back, they came upon a road blocked by a mudslide and had to take an alternate route, they said. Their truck, remember that they're hauling a trailer with three horses in it, got stuck at one point, too, also. So it was quite the adventure. Now, researchers have uh, two rangers who were in the area and on those same roads that Patterson Gimlin said they were driving back on. They said they never saw any side of them, never saw any truck stuck on on the side of the road, and they 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 never saw a a truck uh, pulling a horse trailer either. So there are a little bit of questions even of when exactly they went back and, and what route they took. Huh. So, and that, that could be nothing, but there are, yeah. it's just, it's a lot of holes being poked in a lot of different ways into their story. So that's okay. their story of how it happened. Now, here's this kind of, I, what happens, what do you do with this incredible, this magical, earth-shattering, history-making film footage, right? Patterson got developed, and he figured it would take the scientific world by storm. Yeah. And every scientist mm-hmm. would be all over him, yeah. and he would make so much money from this. He could sell it <laughs> to for all exhibition and things scientists. like that. It did yeah. not. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you think. Well, no, he thought he, he thought he was going to show it commercially. Yeah, but also he'd have all these scientists say, "This is the find of the century. This is proof." Yeah. to back up his his story and get all kinds of publicity and yeah. um, either sell it the rights to it or or exhibit it himself, which he would do, but. The first part of that, which was have science go crazy over your film, just flat didn't happen. Yeah. It was a big, instead of a big buzz, it was a big yawn <laughs> for this, this huh. footage right away. Few researchers or scientists even agreed to even look at it. The handful that did said, eh, I mean, yeah, maybe it's a Bigfoot, probably a guy in a suit. Okay, neat. Leave my office. So, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, it just wasn't that compelling. interesting. Yeah, yeah it wasn't yeah. that compelling. That could, can that be a guy in a suit? You, absolutely. It absolutely could. So yeah. it, that, that proves nothing. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it can't prove anything when you have yeah. a, 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 if it could be a guy in a suit, you can't prove. Uh, Ivan Sanderson, however, he promoted the film like crazy. He was a believer immediately. Remember, he also believed the ice event. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah you can kind of see the latex, but I believe it too. He <laughs> was the cryptozoologist, again, who was duped by the Minnesota Iceman hoax a few years later and was also someone who was generally not taken serious by legitimate researchers. But he was kind of popular at this time. He was on like the Johnny Carson show and things like that. Ivan Sanderson was. Jesus. I know, it seems weird, doesn't it? 
You, you, Do you have, remember him at the time? No, I don't. Mm-mm. But earlier, like 60s and oh. early 70s and things like that. Yeah. Y'all were children. Yeah, he was. Yeah, but dad, that would have been something that you were interested in. But no, probably not then. Maybe you probably maybe. weren't staying up late for Johnny Carson. No, I didn't watch a lot of Johnny Carson. <laughs> I was staying up late enough. Not, not As a seven-year-old. Yeah, no. <laughs> so Sanderson's promotion of it did create a little bit of some awareness of it. So Patterson and Diatley trotted out the film, and they showed it at like some exhibitions over the next maybe year or so. But still, even at that time, by that time, it was still pretty obscure. So the late 60s, 1960s is rolling on, and, but the film kind of gradually becomes, gets some more attention, right? But it's not the scientists that give it attention. It's like the talk shows, as I just mentioned. He was yeah. on Murph Griffin, Joey Bishop's chat show, which oh God. I didn't know had one. And again, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson yeah. had the uh, footage on. Usually, it was Grover Krantz, the one scientist who took it seriously and was a believer in it, who would go on these shows and talk about the film and show the film. So oh. it was gaining some traction at this point. But not Patterson. Patterson and Gimlin didn't get Patterson, to go? No, Gimlin, well, we'll see, you'll see in a second. But uh, Patterson, was he kind of had a face for radio. In fact, he did go on. Oh, oh my no, God. He, it's not that. It's that he just didn't have a... He, didn't have a, <laughs> he um, was homely. No, he didn't have a personality. <laughs> and um, he, he was a gruff, so not well-spoken. So he wasn't charismatic. Yeah, he wasn't at all. Yeah. So he let... Krantz show it or, Sa- or Ivan Sanderson show it. He w- did go on some local radio shows and some local news shows when he was exhibiting it in 1968 and later, but not, he was not on the big shows. Still getting a little love from the scientists in the United States, Patterson says, you know what? I'll let the famous French researcher, René de Hardin, take it to Europe. <laughs> so in 1971, René de Hardin takes Wait. the footage into to Europe. I think it's... Is it a J? It's a, it's a de Hardin. De Hondin? Sure, is, is it a J? Isn't it Desjardin? It's D A H I N D E N. Oh. oh. Ain't no J de, nowhere. De hin, de, I thought you were saying Dahinden? I don't know. Mispronouncing. Yeah. Dahinden? Desjardin, which is a name. Uh, but, like, yeah. I'll just call him Rene. <laughs> yeah. Call him Rene. Safety. He takes it to Europe in 1971. And same thing. The few scientists there that even would look at it thought it was a big shrug. Just like their fellow American scientists, they gave it just a meh. No one was very impressed. The only people who were impressed were a couple of few scientists in Russia. Those are the only, no. only scientists that ah. really gave it a lot of seriousness were, were some Russian scientists huh. in the early 70s. Interesting. Doesn't yeah, surprise me. Doesn't surprise me at all. So Patterson took his show on the road again, but now in kind of a bigger way. He was able to get a deal with the BBC. So the BBC oh. used, uh, paid him to use their, the footage in a docudrama they're making about Bigfoot and Sasquatch, oh. right? Huh. Uh, in exchange for letting him use the footage, for letting them use the footage, the BBC let Patterson exhibit their docudrama uh, oh. back in America. This is before cable. <laughs> so, huh. so it's like, yeah, no biggie. This show is for the English audience. You can show our docudrama for money in the United States if we can use your footage. It's kind of weird that the BBC would be producing a Thing about Bigfoot. About Bigfoot. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know that it was a real, real credulous. I don't, I don't know what show yeah. this was. It but probably yeah. wasn't. Yeah. I don't okay. know. It was probably like, look at these silly Americans. <laughs> and then they, they cut it a little differently for the ones that they sent him. And they blurred, <laughs> they blurred out the yits. So as... Yes. The yeti tits? The yeti tits. Nice. The yits. So as... What? Is that not... Is that okay. How about yubes? Would you prefer yubes, Carrie? Yubes. Yeah. What's yubes. wrong with that? Yes. Yubes it okay. is? Yes. Yeah, Carrie doesn't like. He the, uses words that I don't word. like. The T word like is one. Tits? Of, yeah. Yes. Well, okay. Well, okay. What's wrong with tits? Ex- that's I find it offensive because I just agree with your mother on everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna say Yubes then, because I care. Okay. Her teeth. So, 
Diatley and Patterson, they started renting local theaters, cinemas, and in the Northwest and the Midwest of the United States, and they would go, okay, so they'd schedule some showings, they'd take out a bunch of ads for the showings and say, hey, come see this incredible footage, blah, 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 and they'd show it for a few days in a row, uh, and the agreement was they would take a portion of the gate, of the receipts. Diatley, again, the brother-in-law, would later say that he made about $75,000, his wow. half of the proceeds from this. Wow. Good God. In $1971, how much do you think that'd be nowadays? Oh, 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 2.1 oh, 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 million. Oh, no, God, no. I'm going to say 700, no, that's too convenient. 540 million. No, thousand, thousand, thousand. Carrie? Around $300,000. Oh. So this is a big chunk of change. If, I was close. If he's telling the truth, that's a shit ton of money. Yeah. So now you might ask, as I think you were going to a minute ago, Carrie, where was Bob Gimlin during all this mm-hmm. touring and publicity? Yeah. yeah, I would have thought if I were him, I'd be like, give me half of the money. Uh, that became quite the bone of contention. They, uh, it was a third of the money. He thought he had a deal for that. Oh, yeah. He, huh. was, he was laying low. He, he didn't talk about it. He would not talk about that until the 1990s. Why? Well, I think I know why. Well, well, okay. We'll yeah, save, save it. it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he, he, Gimlin, would later claim that Patterson and Diatley had um, cheated him out of his third of the royalties that they had promised him. He didn't know how much money they were making, had no idea. And uh, this is, by the way, was a, absolutely the MO of Patterson. He, oh, was, uh, he was infamous for not paying anything out. Many, although, took his silence to wonder if maybe he was a little queasy about it. His that's role, his thinking. role in the film. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some have have said that's that's why because again, yeah. he, he he clams up for decades before he talks about it. So after feeling like uh, Patterson the Atley were never going to live up to his the, their end of the bargain, he actually sold his third of the rights for. Uh, it's been reported about ten dollars, which doesn't make any sense. Ten dollars. Yeah. Says uh, a fellow, I think it's uh, Rene de Handine. Huh. Okay, who would eventually get half the rights to the film? He's like, I can offer you ten dollars. I, I I can't. But I I read yeah. that in just one yeah, source. That's... I cannot believe he did it for ten mm-hmm. bucks. That seems crazy. I'll I'll, I'll take a sandwich. I was gonna say and yeah. put yeah. some coke in my hands. Just and a maybe bit. a couple amethyst crystals. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh no, that that seems crazy. But anyway, he sold it off and he didn't have the rights. He would, however, win a lawsuit against Patterson's widow and Al Diatley in 1976 for an undisclosed sum. So he did get some kind of payout. My guess is it wasn't nearly as much as they made. Also, $10. <laughs> Ironically, he got 20 That was 20. quite the spoiler. He got 15 No, it's not that big a deal. Oh. What, that he dies? Yeah. Patterson <laughs> dies. Patterson dies. We all die, Mom. Yeah, well, you yeah heard... but before 1976. Yes, he does. Sure. Still, publicly, even after this settlement, uh, Gimlin again remained silent for about another two decades. Wow. Patterson... Jesus. Would later sell various distribution rights to various entities, some of them overlapping rights, which is uh, illegal. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of lawsuits, some of which were still pending when Patterson died from cancer in January of 1972. Cancer. Oh, oh. Yeah, he had cancer. He oh. was dying when he made this film. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, yeah. You did effect, say. Yeah, he had cancer. It was, uh, he, he, so he lived another five years after the film, but he was not in good shape. Oh, four and a half years after the film so was made. So wait a minute. How is this dying man trekking through this rough-ass country is? Well, he wasn't on his last legs yet in yeah. 1967. He, again, but he didn't it, die for four and a half years, but he, he did like have he cancer. the pinnacle of health either. Yeah, I think he was in remission, because remember, he was recovering okay. from cancer in early 67 when he yeah, that's uh, true. bumped into Gimlin. Yeah. So he was kind of in remission in, in, in later 67 when they made the film. Yeah. 
He left behind a string of people he owed money to from a variety of Bigfoot hunting efforts. So he, again, wow. his whole life, he never paid any of his bills to all those so people. So maybe he just did this to set his wife up. That's exactly what people think. <gasps> oh, yeah. my God. Really? Now, let's talk about the film. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to dissect the film first from the pro stance and then from the con stance. That is, the folks who believe that it's a real film of a real Bigfoot. Okay, let me get in the mindset. Mm-hmm. And then, Ooh, that one guy, Grover Kranz. Grover Kranz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll be mentioning Grover. And then we'll, after that, we'll dissect them. We'll start part two next week, folks. We'll dissect the film from the critics' point of view. There have been several technical studies, air quotes, and other analyses of the film that have supported its authenticity. These studies have generally been done, though, naturally by Bigfoot believers. Again, remember, the vast, vast, vast majority of, you know, academic, legitimate, quote-unquote, researchers have ignored the film for the most part. The people have, who have really dissected it have almost, for the, the vast majority, have been people who believe it. Well, that doesn't sound very open-minded. Uh, and no, yeah, you're right. It's not. Yeah. But but remember, from, well, from a, if you're a, a practicing anthropologist and you take one look at it and say, it looks like a guy in a suit, are you really going to waste time doing the, the kind of work it would take to dissect that film? Probably it, not. You don't have most a lot of time, time probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know, but, but you're right. I mean, and there's also probably pressures within the discipline, like, okay, you're going to get laughed at if you do this. Yeah, so I'm sure there is like now. that. Mm-hmm. These, so anyway, so mostly Bigfoot believers have done these studies. Many of them, by the way, have not even been technical experts, including the Rene Dehandine. He has done some of these studies. He's a longtime Bigfoot researcher who also happens to own 51% of the rights <laughs> to, yeah. The, yeah. to the PGF. So so Wait, he owns 51%? Yes, he now does. 51%. Yeah. He's able to get wow. uh, another share from the widow Yikes. to get a majority of, or Diatli maybe. I think she owns the rest of it, the widow. Roger Patterson's widow owns the rest. These studies have brought up a number of points in favor of the film. So let's talk about the film speed. There's tons of discussion about the film speed in the PGF world, right? It's basically Patterson's rented camera, which it was an expensive and pretty sophisticated uh, 16 millimeter camera, which by the way, he kept past his due date. And they had to call the police and get an arrest warrant for him before he turned it back. He gave it back oh to them. Oh, my God. The guy was just, he was just a crook. Wow. There's no getting around it. He, I think he's going to, well, let's see if they ask for it back. Oh, shit. They called the police. Up no, there. shit. Here you go. They're going to ask for their very he, expensive, specialized I, I, camera back, you camera idiot bit. So this camera filmed at variable speeds, all the way from 16 frames to like 54 frames per second. Something wow. Like that, right? That's impressive. It is. Or 48, something like that. Patterson claimed he filmed the film at 16 or 18 frames per second. This is important because 24 frames is the normal film speed. That's how mm. we look when we're looking normally. Uh, Rene <laughs> said that the movements of the horses looked odd at 24 frames, so he said they looked normal at 18. So he must have filmed it at 18, right? Uh-huh. What? This is important because the creature's movements look more fluid at 18, and also it makes the creature faster than mm. he mm. if he filmed it at 18 frames per second instead of 24. Because remember, filming at slower speed speeds up the movements. That's how you do fast motion. Right. Yeah. The slower you, you and, and vice versa. When they do slow mo, they're filming at very, very fast speed. And then they just more than 24. Yeah. Yeah. So this means playing the film at 16 or 18 frames per second makes the Bigfoot look to be moving faster 
than it really was if if you were filming it at 24 frames yeah. per second. You're effectively speeding up the film by showing it at 16 or 18. Right. And so a little that, tricky trick. A little trick. And that's why Patterson had to claim, oh, I, I shot it at 16 or 18. Uh-huh. Uh, how do I say this? That's it's It's ridiculous. Filming at 24 frames per second is overwhelmingly the normal speed anyone would film Anything at, particularly if they wanted to sell this to any kind of TV or film roasters, you would not. You would absolutely film at twenty four because that's what their ex- expectation would be. Right. It makes no sense to film it at any different speed, uh, let alone one that speeds it up. So Wait, I thought uh, we were talking about the pros. Well, okay, I'm sneaking yeah. in some. Uh, I, <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to it, but I, I, just, I just want to mention that twenty four is the norm. Patterson said it was at sixteen or eighteen. We'll see. So. The morphology of the creature is also another bone of contention. And some of the folks, this is, does the creature look like a creature or does it look like a man in a suit? In Renee's analysis that he conducted with some Russian scientists who were big fans of, of the film. Again, Russians were about the only Europeans who were responsive to the film. They had a Russian sculptor come on and say, quote, the better a costume from the anatomical point of view, the worse it would be from the viewpoint of biomechanics. A, what does that even mean? A clever oh, costume on a moving I, hoaxer I would expose, not conceal a fraud. You tell me what that means. I have no Wait, idea. that second part, I can kind of see what he's going yeah, for the first he, part, but the second part makes no kind of sense. It's not a costume, because if it was a costume, it would be obvious. And it wouldn't be natural. But why would it be the better a costume from an anatomical point of view? Why? The worse it would be from a viewpoint of biomechanics. Why? I don't, that, that part that, I don't get. Yeah, that it's an assertion. No it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. It's a non sequitur. Just so, say yeah. a bunch of words yeah. and it confuse people. Yeah. And He's like, I have you. smart. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be smart now. Thank you. Another Russian group said the creature could not be human on the basis of his weight and its gait. His weight and his gait? His weight and his gait. As to the gait, that is the way it walked, they argued that no human could walk like that. Oh, what? Okay, okay. I, it I was could, too confident and unswerving. I could walk Seriously? like that right now. It was too confident. Bitch, give me some alcohol and there I go. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump could walk like that. Yeah, no, he can't. He does walk like that. Yeah. Unswerving, not down a slight incline. And as for the True. weight being impossible, there was, uh, they, they cited the ponderous momentum of the arms, the what? bend of the knees, and the flatness of the feet. That's absolutely ridiculous. This is the pro. Yeah. We're going to stay positive here, people. Oh, sorry. That makes so much sense. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I can totally I get see it. it. The flat feet, people don't have those. Uh-uh. No, I've never met a person It's impossible. It, had, it must have weighed 600 pounds then because it mm-hmm. bent its knees. Mm-hmm. The creature's locomotion has also been studied by others, too, including Grover Krantz. He argued that its stride and its center of gravity proved it was a real creature, not a human. That its movements are too different from a human to be faked. His knees are more bent than a human bends its knees. His feet come up higher off the ground than a human's come up. Its strides seem very long, too long for a a natural (laughs) human walk. Uh, Jeff Meldrum, he's the Idaho State University anthropologist, who's kind of replaced Grover Krantz as the one academic guy who is a believer. Mm -hmm. He says that uh, he claimed that an animator named Ruben Steindorf had validated the creature by reconstructing its skeleton in computer graphic form. And that this showed that the ratio of its upper body was longer than its lower, lower body in normal humans, that it had a, the, the upper to lower body ratio was longer than humans, was a larger figure. Okay. Okay. I would like to see that skeletal reconstruction. Yeah, yeah. That'd be interesting to I see haven't what seen yes. I think no, it I think would I look like. I didn't watch that one. Meldrum also points out that to uh, he, he points out to what looked like muscles moving beneath the hair 
and the skin, and that, and also some muscle mass. It's like there's the trapezoid right there. There's the tricep that that correspond to what a living creature would have. He cites that as as huge evidence that it can't be a fake because it has muscles, and he can see the muscles moving. That's mm. interesting. That we're, is. We're keeping a positive attitude here. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe it. <laughs> Bill Munns yeah. is uh, Bill Munns is, has become a huge advocate lately. He's a special effects artist behind such movies as The Return of the Living Dead, Swamp Thing, and The Beastmaster. Well, he knows then. More of an '80s guy. He does the practical effects like prosthetics and makeup, right? He's probably on one of those TV shows, I imagine. Maybe mm-hmm. he is, actually. I don't know. Munns has taken up the cause of the PGF, and he supports it generally. He uses the, but he, he uses that classic true believer maneuver that is to flip how science actually works and argues that if the film can't be proven a fake, yeah. then it must it's be real. Be real. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's not how it works, Mr. You, oh, you hear it so often. and, and just uh, yeah. Go down the rabbit hole just a little bit, and you hear the film that has never been conclusively debunked. Yeah. You hear that all the time. This film has never been debunked. But it, that's not how the world works, shithead. So Munns cites four key factors. One, the film is actually pretty good. It's not that shaky. <laughs> it's not the grainy, <laughs> shaky mess that the critics claim. Second, the shakiness of the film actually argues against special effects. Hold up. What? Well, I know. He's already contradicting yeah, himself. But still, yeah, right then there, there. He, I guess he'd, he'd acknowledge some shakiness. Again, go watch the film right yeah. now, yeah. listeners. It's insane. Is you can, Blair first, Witch the first who? seconds, you, you can't see anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly shaky. So his second point, though, he says the shakiness of the film argues that it couldn't be special effects because film special effects usually require a, quote, locked down camera. And so the film wasn't edited. That's not how you do special effects. So that's that's his, minute, his claim. You would lock down a camera and and you would note it and you would edit to do special effects in the in the movie world. Oh, sure. So because those things weren't happening, it was not special yeah. effects. So he's talking seen. about like like practical. Effects he's making too? he's he's making he's not talking about practical exactly. Effects. So that's he's making a straw man argument. Yeah, yeah. Yes. He basically is because no one would disagree. It, it, people who don't believe in the film aren't saying it's any special effects. It's a guy yeah. in a suit. So right, you don't need exactly. to lock down the fucking camera and you don't need to edit it because yeah. it was not edited or locked down. It didn't need to be. It was a guy in a suit that you're filming. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's the third reason he cites is I'm going to be kind here. Absolute gibberish. I, I should, I should have long quoted from, but I didn't. It's, it's about something about how critics have not used advanced forensic film analysis on the PGF. Be, uh, and that proves that they're afraid that they would not be able to oh, prove it no. a hoax. Oh, sure. And that mm. those techniques mm-hmm. would for sure ferret out if the film was a hoax. So the fact that the, ex, the, the critics aren't doing that, that proves yeah. it's true. That, I, my response to that is what now? His fourth point is that the animal looks real and not like it's a creature in a fur costume. And here he does have some expertise. But he illustrates this with, I've seen some pictures of a man walking in a really horrible gorilla-like fur costume. I mean, if, I, I, I'm assuming that uh, Munn's dressed up his actor in this costume, yeah. and if that's the best he can do, how the hell do you have a good job on Beastmaster? Because it's <laughs> well, ridiculous. Well, I see him trying to do a purposefully yeah. bad it looks like, Yeah, exactly. It looks, yeah. Like, it looks like a fucking banana split without the head on. Yeah, he's just trying <laughs> to go to Party City. He's going, see? That's what it would look like if it was a man in a costume. No, no, because it wasn't a horrible costume. So generally, these arguments are all pretty much nonsense, but if we assume... That the um, again, if we assume as we just talked about that the, it was just the film of a man walking across the meadow in a suit, then it takes care really of his first three arguments. They're, they're kind of especially the first yeah. two. Yeah. They don't make they're not valid. 
So guess that's why you won't find any effects or any editing on the film at all. You didn't need any. That's not how they did it. But uh, and of course the third one is like it's not even an argument at all. It's just it's just yeah. him saying a word salad. And plus remember, he is uh, as far as the the first point, he's utterly delusional. It is in fact incredibly shaky. He's he's not accurate there. Uh, it would be worthless as a, as a nature film, it, but it would be very, very, uh, it would be perfect if you wanted to obs- maybe obscure your subject a little bit from <laughs> overly close analysis, again, a la Alien Autopsy. The fur costume question does, I mean, he's, he's not wrong there. It, it's a, if it's a fur costume, let's be honest, it's a fantastic costume. Yeah. It's a yes. great costume. It's Miss it Doubtfire level good. Yeah, it is. Hello! Said <laughs> Patty. <laughs> they should have called her Patty as an homage. They makes, did makes no call sense her whatsoever. Patty, you said. No, he means Mrs. Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, Miss. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's Euphonet Jaya or something like that. Was it? it? <laughs> What's Euphonet, her name? Euphonet Jaya. <laughs> no, what was Euphonet Jaya? Doubtfire's first name. I don't no. remember. It was something like that. I'm not e- far Euphonet off. Euphonet Jaya. <laughs> Euphonet Jaya. <laughs> yes. Hey, listeners out there, if you name your child Euphonet Jaya. I don't know how Jaya, to say it, but it's similar to that. Eugenia? No. Oh. Robin. Robin Williams. No. Yeah, her name. This is live action Carrie doing some research here of Euphigenia. Euphigenia. <laughs> I like Euphigenia. But she said it's something like watch Ms. Doubtfire again. Okay, and we, it's similar. I'm not going to watch this for now. Oh, I'm Euphigenia. I'm correct. I know I am. Okay, sure. So the fur costume, though, it comes down basically to this, though. You either, it was a man in a really, really good costume, or it was a Bigfoot. That is a massive primate living in a modern, well-explored world that has left behind not one single scrap of physical evidence in decades and decades of sightings. Yep. And, I, and, and yeah. if, you say, if you say footprints is physical evidence, footprints are not physical evidence. Nope. They're mm-hmm. evidence of, they're a trace of that. They are not actual physical yeah. evidence. That would be Bitch. fur and poop and bones and bodies, which there's like literally nothing. So you pick. Guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mons, by the way, has no biological or physiological or zoological training whatsoever. He can just say that I, he just basically says, I don't see how someone faked that suit, uh, so it must not be a hoax. That's basically, that's the core of his argument. Which solid, is, solid. Which is not argument. nothing. That's not, that's not completely nothing, but it's, it's not how science or yeah. truth mm-hmm. works. Yeah. Science is the consistent peeling away of things we previously did not understand or did not know. Everything that we don't understand has a supernatural answer until yeah. we do understand it. Yep. And then it suddenly mm-hmm. doesn't have a supernatural answer anymore. That's oh, there's lots of things I don't understand that I don't think are supernatural. Yeah, uh, because you have logic. Yeah. I mean, that would be a really weird world if it worked that way. And suddenly the supernaturalness yeah. disappeared once you understood the, the reality of it. So that's where we'll leave you, folks. We'll get to part two next week. Please give that a listen because we'll, we're first going to dissect it from a, a, the critical point of view, which we <laughs> kind of already did. Yeah, but we'll do that a little more. And then we'll, we'll talk about maybe some of the motivations behind the film and some of the inspirations behind the film. And then, uh, and then we'll tell you about Bob Gillen and catch up with him. He has an interesting story to tell as well. I have one question. Yes. Quick question. Is Patterson's wife alive still? I think she is, actually. Okay. Yeah. Let's call her up. Okay. Yeah, let's interview her. Right. Let's interview her. Yeah, that's Next a great up, idea. Um, uh, an interview with, what's her name? Christy Patterson. No. <laughs> yeah, I think um, Patricia. Oh, I Euphigenia. <laughs> I think. I'm not sure. It's Euphigenia, yeah. I think her name is Euphigenia. So that's it, folks. Please, um, Carrie. Listen to us next time. And do all the other things at... Oh. Uh, Weird World Podcast on all the things. Weird World Podcast at Gmail and Weird World Pod on Twitter. Thank you. Until next week, we'll take this up again. 
Goodbye. Bye.